0: Welcome to the new podcast, Leading by History, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history and educational leadership, changing our world and society one story at a time. Any account of black history in America without the mentioning of Booker T. Washington or W.B. Du Bois is utterly incomplete. In the late 19th to early 20th centuries, these educational giants helped to change the course of history for African American people in relationship to education. Booker T. Washington was born into slavery in Virginia in the year 1856. His early life had much influence on the way he thought later in life. He worked with his hands in a salt mine, also as a domestic for a white family. He eventually attended the Hampton Institute, which was one of the first all black schools in America. And once he completed his education, he became a classroom teacher. Later, he was asked to head the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute in Alabama, which was somewhat of a vocational school, giving African-Americans moral and practical knowledge and skills to make them successful in life. Washington had a firm belief in economic independence and believed that it was through career, technical education that African-American people could actually improve their status in life. W.E.B. Du Bois was born in 1868 in Massachusetts. He was born to a free black family in a somewhat integrated community. He attended local schools and excelled in his studies and graduated as the class valedictorian. In 1885, when he began attending Fisk University in Tennessee, he had one of his first encounters with racism and the oppression of the Jim Crow South. And this experience had a profound impact on the way that he thought, not only about himself, his family, his education, but about race in general. After earning his PhD from Harvard University, he was the first black man to have done so. By the early 20th century, Washington and Du Bois were two of the most influential black men in the entire country. Yet both of these men disagreed with each other concerning the purpose, the plan and the plight of African-American people in America and particularly in the South. W.B. Du Bois believed that it was through higher academic knowledge and education that one could increase and improve his or her status in life. Washington believed that a trade and a work with the hands is what would prove African-American people as beneficial to American society, as the builders of America. The two never saw eye to eye during their lifetime, but did agree that there needed to be massive changes and improvements to change the course of history and put African American people in a position of equality. And they both believed that black people in America had the innate ability to excel and to achieve just as much or even more than any other race of people in America. Let's get ready for this week's discussion in leading by history, in which we will talk about the importance of education for those students who are the most vulnerable in our society and how their education can actually change their status and course of life. We welcome you all back to this episode of Leading by History. We have a special guest with us today, Dr. Lynette Tanis who is on faculty at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We welcome her to the show. And she's going to talk to us a little bit today about the school to prison pipeline, focusing really on the pipelines. Dr. Tanis, welcome to Leading by History.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for this podcast.
0: I am so excited. Um, Since the first time that I spoke with you, I knew that we had to do this show. And uh, I am so ready to to really get this information out. Uh, the Leading by History podcast really uh, works to, to get information to the people. We know that people just don't have time anymore to just read and read and read and still work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. But they want to be informed. And sometimes mm-hmm. the traditional news setting gives too much of a hodgepodge of information. And people want some specifics. And so that's the niche of the Leading by History podcast. We're going to bring you that information on education, bring you that information on history, um, and, and and blend those two things together. And so every show, we have a historical exemplar uh, that we base our show around. And I think that it's very important for us to take a look at the two figures that we're discussing in the beginning of the show when we're looking at w-e-b du bois properly pronounced du bois some people try to get french with it with the dubois but he he stated clearly it was du bois and uh and also uh booker t washington and even though the two uh bumped heads from time to time uh, i think that their philosophy was that regardless of whether it was a career technical education. Or whether it was, uh, for one, going into academia as a part of the talented tenth, the key was that education was the, um, was the foundation for success in American society. And I think the two would at least agree there that we have to teach, um, our young people and train them to prepare them for the future. And so, um, as we, we talked today about the, school-to-prison pipeline and really focus on that pipeline, we want the audience to keep in mind uh, those two men who really worked hard for the purpose of education. And uh, as uh, my alma mater uh, used to say, we have to be prepared to educate the least of these. And so who else could that be but those children that are stuck in the pipeline that are many times overlooked? So Dr. Tanis, we, we always open up the show with getting you to tell us a little bit about yourself because our audience always wonders, well, why, why, why are we listening to uh, these particular guests that you have on? They don't, they may not know about you. Some may uh, give us a run, run down your resume. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you to being on faculty at the Harvard graduate school of of, of education. And just tell us a little bit about how you got into the place and space where you are today, advocating for children uh, in that pipeline.
1: Sure. Again, um, thank you so much uh, for having me as a part of this podcast uh, today. So I started as a classroom teacher 23 years ago. I think it's important that people understand even what led me into education. Um, As a young child, I realized that there were great disparities that existed between the school and education that my neighborhood friends received, and where I went to school. My parents originated from Trinidad, so they were immigrants uh, into this country and came to New Jersey in the late 1960s and realized, uh, my father of African descent, mother of Indian descent, that opportunities really differed depending on what a person looked like or where a person lived. And so they had a theory that if they sent their children where wealthy white families sent their children for school, that we would receive a quality a high-quality education and that we would be able to be competitive um, as we got older and as a child going to that private school and realizing that We were at least a year ahead of my neighborhood friends who looked very much like me um, I just saw that as a tremendous injustice and decided that I would one day, become a teacher, and that I would teach in Plainfield, New Jersey, which is actually where I was born and raised. And so that was my first commitment to being involved in education. And I really wanted to make sure that, you know, no matter what a child looked like, no matter where they lived, that they would be respected, that they would be loved, and that would receive a high quality education that they deserve. And so in my Teaching role. Uh, I also took on a literacy coordinator position, eventually a school principal, and in in all of that, I was able to help um, really transform the learning environment. And I think that's just because of my commitment to excellence and just belief that every child can achieve high academic and behavioral standards. And so. It was after uh, my school, when I was a principal in North New Jersey, we were ranked the number one school in, in New Jersey for the most gains made, and the school had made AYP, or adequate yearly progress. This is back in the No Child Left Behind days. Um, and, you know, just to see the progress and the turnaround, um, making sure that the school was a healthy climate for our adults, for our children, uh, that's when I decided to pursue a doctorate. Uh, at Harvard, specifically in the Urban Superintendent Program. And I started there July of 2009. I thought my research was going to focus on effective school leadership because that was definitely one thing that I saw was a difference. Uh, The same way we talk about the the difference that a quality teacher makes versus an ineffective teacher is the same thing that I noticed of like, okay, how could these same schools that I helped turn around, they had school leaders, what was the difference? So I designed a research study, and uh, that focused on the educational programs, really looking at it from a a system and structural level in Florida, uh, spending time in four residential facilities. And that was my dissertation, and I graduated May of 2013. But the more I talked about this, the more facilities that I visited, I realized um, that people really didn't know, you know. I would still run into people who would say, "Wait, they have school for those kids, you know?" And it's like, "Yes, they do, or they should, you know, have school for these children because these children are going to return to our communities, and so why wouldn't we want them to be educated while they're incarcerated?" And so mm-hmm. uh, that work ended up getting published and came out. Uh, Paul Ray McMillan published that piece. It's titled "Educating Incarcerated Youth: The Importance." Of or exploring the impact of relationships, expectations, resources, and accountability. And so that came out uh, November of 2014. And it was interesting that just two weeks later, uh, then Attorney General Eric Holder, and then uh, U.S. Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan made a joint proclamation that all incarcerated youth deserve a high quality education. And so it was it was just, it was wonderful to like experience the, 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 the sort of the flow, the wow, okay. Um, and yet, uh, even though the, the, the joint sort of partnership put together some guiding principles, it was just also interesting to go out into the field and be in facilities and people were not even aware of these guiding principles. Um, but mm. fast forward in February of 2016, I was asked to teach a special topic seminar. Uh, back up at the harvard graduate school of education and after the dean reviewed the feedback from that he is the one uh that asked if i would consider designing a course there to be taught um and so of course i i felt like it started on appian way and i i truly believe that anyone in education in any realm whether it's research practice or policy we we have to know about this marginalized group because in many ways uh, it is stemming from what's happening or not happening in our communities in our schools and it's it's kind of like enough is enough you know they've been in the margins for far too long and it's just time to bring these children's lives to the forefront. I I can't be upset with people who haven't thought about this population because as I mentioned earlier, like I was in education since 1995, I started as a teacher and it wasn't until 2009 that I thought about education for incarcerated youth. Um, And so what I'm grateful for is that I feel like we're at least shining additional light into these spaces and just making people more aware, more better educated so that they can ask the proper questions and really make sure that like every child really, truly is receiving the quality education that I believe they deserve, you know? And I'm just grateful that I have what I believe been sort of called to this work um, so that I can be a voice for this population.
0: So let's go ahead and get into the meat of the conversation. Now that we know a little bit about you and your journey, um, let's really, you know, start to discuss and unpack uh, the, the concepts and the ideas and um, the, the, the statements that you've been uh, making concerning this effort. And let's go ahead and, and, and get into the meat of things. So the first question I want to ask you is, why do you think that there's a lack of light being shined Mm -hmm. on the incarcerated population, specifically children of color and those uh, with special needs? Sure. I I would
1: say, you know, based on our nation's history, uh, there are for sure um, people that we have marginalized and devalued, and we see that in our uh, children, people of color, uh, children with special needs, and what what we find is that in these spaces uh, children of poverty as well and so uh, it's it's a population that really lacks you know political sort of capital and uh, because of that, they are disproportionately um, at at a disadvantage and so overall uh, based on the approximate hundred thousand youth who are incarcerated in in a mm-hmm. in a year um, Uh, within approximately 1,800 juvenile facilities nationwide, and that doesn't account for those who are in adult prisons and uh, jails as well. Uh, But 68% of the youth who are incarcerated in juvenile facilities are children of color. Um, There's a high percentage, as I mentioned, of children of poverty. Um, When there was a, a study that was done in terms of special needs, it was shown that where the children in traditional public schools, the special needs population is about 12%. Children who are incarcerated, that increases to 36%. So children with special needs are three times more likely to end up incarcerated. And so I just believe that, you know, based on the beliefs, uh, kind of going back to my introduction of uh, what happened with, with my parents, although I didn't say specifically, My father, who is uh, just a beautiful uh, chocolate-colored skin, was working on ship engines and big truck engines and all this stuff in Trinidad, and actually was offered the job in New Jersey without them meeting him, just based on his knowledge of what he was able to, to share over the phone and you know when he arrived in new jersey and called to make sure that that job was still his they said yes phil come on in and when he went on in that morning they looked at him and was like oh uh actually that job's already been filled but we have a car wash and we do need help drying the cars and so uh again that's just one personal example but we know just based on the history of our nation and unfortunately other nations that it really is like, okay, well, what does your exterior look like? What are you sort of displaying? Um, do you have things or not have things? And then that's kind of how we weed out and discard the people that we truly feel like we should value or not. And I think this is just a continuation of that very flawed foundation.
0: Mm. What does the data say concerning the magnitude of this issue you gave us some some uh, some data about you know how how many uh youth are you know being incarcerated and you know you, you gave us some facts but just how what, what's the magnitude of this issue how is this really affecting um uh, children in general but especially specifically and especially um you know black and brown children inner city children impoverished children. yeah
1: well the, the the thing is is that you know when you look at many of the mission statements for departments of juvenile justice you will see that the first sort of the first piece is to protect the public it is not about restoring rehabilitating really truly seeing the child as a child as a human being and really making sure they get the services that's not to say that that doesn't happen in places for the majority of mission statements that i've uh, seen, it is really about protecting the public, and so part of that is just, well, you're here for the two years, so you know I'm just going to make sure you don't escape uh, um, they are you know there's a term that was used um, uh, over a decade ago but you know the term warehousing and i would say in many places we are warehousing our children and so when you think about that you know even for the child who wants to do better who you know for whatever reason was just caught up in that whatever it was that ended them adjudicated the the sort of the word that's used We use sentencing for adults, but the word adjudicated for for youth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were adjudicated delinquent, even if they want a better chance uh, or or just opportunities or to be sort of shaped and and sharpened uh, in many places, if the belief is still there that, you know, these are less than. Then there is no, even though funds are provided, there's no true investment in these lives, and so that equates to, you know, the the funnel, just a continuation of the system beyond the incarcerated youth facilities, but into the adult population. And in many of these places, you know, the recidivism rate is extremely high. Um, There was a study that was done at the adult level. Uh, a RAND report that was done that that showed that the uh, the adult well again this is just some of the terminology that we use but we refer to sort of those adults who are incarcerated as inmates so the adult incarcerated population when they were exposed to educational programs they actually showed a recidivism rate that was thirty. Six percent less recidivism. Mm. And so we understand that education does play an important piece to this. And yet I think it's also important that people realize that within the juvenile justice setting, you know, it is really designed. Everyone, anyone in a juvenile facility will tell you it's all about SNS, which is safety and security. And education is not a priority education is just another piece of the program that they design for youth and so in the same way that Mm -hmm. they will say children need counseling or therapy education sort of becomes another bucket so to speak it's not that education we know how empowering education is. And so let that be the the foundation, the ceiling, the the sides, everything. And, oh, yes, maybe we do need to secure this space. Um, and so I believe part of what's needed is also just a, a shift in mindset as well.
0: Hmm. Now, you, you talk about some of the research that was done about, you know, looking at the adult population of those that are incarcerated and how you know, uh, we can uh, examine and see and maybe determine recidivism rates, etc. There seems to be a wide focus on imprisoned adults, but there's not a focus on the vulnerable population of children in these institutions. I mean, w- we've seen uh, adult uh, inmates fight for the right to continue to earn a, a college education, uh, to get their GEDs, to learn a trade, yet We don't hear about these kinds of programs for children. We know that children, in the state of Virginia at least, um, they're able to uh, stay in juvenile educational programs until the age of 21, okay? Um, And alternative uh, schools here in Virginia, they have until the age of 21. They can continue to pursue an education until that age. Yet we do not hear about an, an advocation for children to learn any type of trade or anything of that nature. If you've got people that are in alternative programming, right, those who have been kicked out of comprehensive schools or put out, right, and, and, and now they're until they're 21, they're still going to school with kids that are 16, 17, 18, 19, but yet there is not a great focus on career technical education, Uh, there's not a a, a great focus on ensuring that those students make it to college and having those kinds of of connections to get students into college. You know, why is there such a great focus on adults who are incarcerated, but yet when it comes to children who are our most vulnerable population, there's just not the same type of emphasis when it comes to educating them?
1: Yeah, no, that's another great question. And um, actually, that's really something that I wondered, like I said, 10 years ago when I started exploring this. I think for one reason, again, because children, especially within these facilities, are a vulnerable population, a lot is done to sort of protect them, so to speak. Um, But that protection, uh, because they are children, has actually led to their demise almost um, because then there's a lack of accountability that has been allowed to occur in many of these spaces and you know to your point about vocational programs educational programs there was the Council of State Governments actually came out with a report this was in November of 2015 called locked out improving the educational and vocational outcomes for incarcerated youth And what they did is they surveyed the 50 states to just find out, you know, what programs were they offering their incarcerated youth? Was it comparable to the educational and vocational programs uh, that children within the community would receive who were not incarcerated? And it's sad to say, but only eight states or 16% of our states actually reported providing an educational and vocational program for their incarcerated youth that was comparable to the educational and vocational programs for children who were not incarcerated in their community schools. I think part Mm. of the issue, again, going back to the lack of accountability, I mentioned the, the approximate number of juvenile facilities nationwide. I think it's important that people understand that. There's sort of a split. There's, you know, 55% of the facilities, according to the most recent Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention data, 55% of these facilities are publicly owned, while 45% are privately owned by either for-profit or not-for-profit. And so depending on the structure within the state, that also varies. In some states, it is the Uh, Department of Justice uh, juvenile justice that's responsible for the education in other states it's the Department of Education there's some states where it's the the health or the children family services uh, more of like the social services uh, department in some states they've created their own school district for facilities and so there's so much variation that I, I feel like has also further Contributed to this lack of clarity and lack of accountability for this population. And you know, when I graduated in 2013, I, you know, I'm, I'm certified to be a school superintendent. That's what I was trained to be. I um, would feel very comfortable taking on a, a, a role. I, 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 totally understand systems, and and uh, and yet I, I just could not believe the lack of, of research and conversation uh, regarding this population. And so I knew, <laughs> I knew back in May of 2013, that I'm supposed to be a voice for this population. And I tell my students even that like, that's what I feel like I'm doing. Perhaps, yes, I may be doing a bit more than that. But I still believe that I am serving as a voice. And so I think part of what needs to happen is, you know, we just need to have more conversations and really enlighten people. Um, I just feel like we, we don't think about the children we don't see, and because they have been removed, and again, with the vulnerable piece, um, that we're we just not making sure that they're being properly taken care of.
0: So what, what are the support programs uh, for principals and teachers within the juvenile justice system? What have you seen? what's there, and, 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 and I guess by answering that question, we'll know what's not there as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, so uh, in many places, um, the principals, especially if the principals belong to or the educators belong to the local school district, what you find is uh, there's just sort of joint training that happens, which typically just focuses on the children in traditional settings, um, not specific to those who are incarcerated, which, as we know, um, you know, is just a higher percentage of children dealing with um, complex trauma and other issues. And I would say, even for you know, private facilities, uh, for-profit, not-for-profit, a large percentage of their training is on you know, takedown tactics, um, de-escalation mm-hmm. tactics, uh, you know important pieces perhaps to the program but nothing at all directly related to education and so uh every place that i've gone i just feel like the educators have just been so warm and welcoming and i think it's just because you know in the same way we've kind of like sent the children away it's almost as if we've punished the adults who are there to care for the children Uh, in the sense Mm -hmm. that uh, very little is provided for them in terms of resources and support. I mean, in some places, in some states, they have uh, begun to invest in, you know, getting specific uh, training and resources for the educators. Um, But uh, I would say this is still an area that's lacking. In many, many places, I uh, still um, meet principals and teachers who, Never had any pre-training workshop, course, anything about what mm. this environment looks like, feels like. You know what are strategies to work with this population, and so it's um, it just it just continues to increase the challenges that already exist in this challenging environment.
0: And and having worked in uh Private day treatment facilities and alternative education programs, public and private. Um, you know, I, I definitely concur that you know th- it's really difficult to be a teacher in those environments and uh, to get the kind of training that you need to help you maintain. I mean, the the turnover rate is very high in in mm-hmm. in those kinds of placements, um, and part of that is because you You are alienated from the world and just attempting to make that one school your reality, and that's it. And you don't get to talk with other people and get outside influence and thinking and ideas. and so yeah it, it it's really tough. Uh, but what have you seen that schooling looks like in private alternative settings? We talked about the professional development for Teachers and principals, which is almost non existent, but what does the actual schooling look like for the the students there more specifically than you know what what's offered what's the pedagogy looking like in these kinds of institutions
1: well, um I would say well one l- let me just also say in terms of the high turnover rate it you know you're accurate with that, but what's also interesting is that I feel like it's all it's at two extremes is what i notice in places and so in some places there is an extremely high turnover rate and then in others there are teachers who have been there 15 16 20 some years um, but some yeah. who feel like they actually would not survive or function in a school in a traditional school um, which is right. also I also find very interesting, um, but I think you know par- part of what happens, and I think why uh, teachers sometimes become despondent in these spaces is you know even if they put forth their efforts to plan a great lesson or you know do something well with their students it is it is highly likely that the students may not come to class on time, they may miss out on. A significant portion of their learning time because, again, the facility side does trump everything with safety and security. And so, what happens is over time, you just kind of start to maybe scale back or you just kind of lose heart even um, for what could be, you know, all of the possibilities that could exist. But I would say a significant challenge is that in many places, there are children, you know, ages 12 to 18, 19, as you mentioned. In some facilities, they may allow children to be there till 21. In Oregon, there's a facility where youth can actually be there until 25 um, to, to serve out the rest of their time. Uh, in some states, however, you know, the day before their 18th birthday, if they Still have time to serve they are automatically sent to an adult uh, facility and so what happens is with this mix of ages and then also the range for just uh what they are sort of wherever their levels are whether it's basic math algebra or geometry or tr- trigonometry what happens is is like okay well how do i teach all of these things you know within this 50 minute block or whatever the time frame is and so many times what you'll find is teachers will have you know photocopies or worksheets of materials and children have you know a manila folder perhaps a a different color folder if if they're fortunate but it's it's not truly tapping into the intelligence, the multiple intelligences that our children have. It is sort of just meeting this basic, well, he's in the sixth grade, he's, you know, needing middle school math, and he's in the ninth grade, he needs algebra. And so it's more of like, let's kind of get these worksheets so that we can say, And in some places, they actually say that their children have individualized learning plans, different from the individualized education program for special needs students. But it's easy to get excited about that, like, wow, you have an individual plan for every child. But when you actually ask for the artifacts for that, uh, again, what you find is a lot of worksheets. Um, which we know yeah. uh, don't work like that's is not um, stimulating in in any way, um not to say there's not a place for that sometimes to reinforce skills, but you know our children need just to be actively engaged in learning real world you know really truly taking on real world challenges and and demonstrating mastery of grade level standards by taking on those challenges, whether that's through project based learning or or STEM education, you know, but really making sure learning to the extent possible is as hands-on as possible. And so I would say, you know, you you may see a mix, but for the most part, what I see in facilities is what I described with the sort of
0: packets, packets of work. Yes, yes, the infamous packets. So what is your level of engagement with this population in, in the pipeline? Because- Again, you know, Dr. Michelle Alexander and others, they, they talk about, um, you know, this, this uh, school to prison pipeline and incarcerated males in the black community and, you know, um, but what is, number one, the actual pipeline and, and what is your level of engagement with the pipeline?
1: So, I will say again, going back to 2009 when I started researching educational opportunities for incarcerated youth, you know, people would introduce me and say, Oh, this is Lynette. Oh, you know, her work is focused on the school to prison pipeline. And I would stop them right away and say, No, no, I am concerned with what's happening while they're in the pipeline. And I felt like there were, you know, conversations that were happening about the school to prison pipeline. But I will tell you, after spending the length of time that I have in facilities and talking to the children who are like, Miss, I dropped out of school in the second grade. I left school in sixth grade. I see for sure that there is, in fact, a pipeline that needs to be totally dismantled um, based on the work even that the Justice Policy Institute and others have done. But it was demonstrated that you know, schools with uh, resource officers or police officers, uh, students in those schools are 11 times more likely to end up involved in the juvenile justice system. Uh, Children who are suspended or expelled are three times more likely to be involved in the juvenile justice system. It was also Mm -hmm. determined, it's going to be no surprise to you, but children of color who uh, typically when they do receive some type of sanction, Uh, It is for very subjective reasons, so, you know, woeful disrespect or was disrespectful versus uh, children of European descent. Typically, when they uh, receive some type of discipline, it is very objective. You know, uh, vandalism in the bathroom, smoking on school premises. Again, you see the disparities that exist uh, depending on what children look like, and so mm. I think part of it is again going back to to the ignorance and the belief that we have about some populations of of children and I think also you know that's kind of on the behavior side. but in Texas, uh, just to give one example, there's a school district uh, a couple of years ago the superintendent actually uh, ended up being indicted because instead of them really trying to make sure their English language learners received, you know, extra resources and support, what they were doing was actually allowing children to skip grades so that they avoid avoided taking the 10th grade uh, assessment, state assessment. Um, students were finding out that they had graduated even though they may have only finished a year or two. Um, And so even on the academic side, it is evident that we are pushing children out of school. That is the term that I actually started using uh, recently. Within the last two years, um, the more that I uh, saw the just – the the injustice that that is occurring with this school-to-prison pipeline, I realize that in many cases, it, it really is that we are pushing children out of school. The same children that are, like, wandering the halls, you know they're disconnected because they're struggling either academically and or behaviorally. Our answer is, well, we got to suspend him because he's disrupting the learning environment. And what happens when he's on suspension? He ends up doing something really foolish. He These are children. <laughs> Um, they end up doing something really foolish that end up oh now they have an ankle bracelet Again, now they're involved in the juvenile justice system. Restorative justice practices are also really important having restorative circles and really mm-hmm. talking about what what transpired. Um, and you know if you if you really truly believe in the lives of children, you will seek to understand your first no, no matter what they've done and how angry or upset you are, you will really seek to understand it's the same way as a parent to a child. You know, yes, you might be angry at what they did, but, but you also want to like, what, what were you thinking? Like, help me to understand what you were thinking. And the same way you wouldn't lock up a child for a, a week or a month. You know, is the same way we have to treat all of our children humanely no matter what they look like, no matter what they live, no matter how much money they may or may not have. It is critical that we value the lives of our children. And even if these are not our own children, these are the children that have been gifted to this world. And it is really important that we focus on them and that we love them in the best way that we can and part of that is making sure that they receive the quality education that they deserve.
0: Mm. And, I, and I can hear that you're feeling what you're saying right now as you're, you're talking about this. And you gave those educators that are in the audience some ideas about what they can do to actually advocate for children, what they can actually do to help inspire children, educate children, and to, to turn – uh, this not only turn this, this uh, the flow of this pipeline around and start getting people out of uh, institutions back into school systems where they can learn back to educational facilities, but also how to actually disrupt this pipeline and blow it up so that we don't even have to have it at all. You talked about the the desire to or how we should have a desire as educators to first understand and we know Stephen Covey made the statement that we must always first seek to uh understand then to be understood. I purposely went over uh our time today because I felt that this uh topic was important uh enough for us to, to forego our normal time limits and I'll do that every now and then on the podcast. But I wanna end out uh the show uh with a with with two questions. I'll ask the first one, let you respond and then uh, we'll leave out with with the last question, which may be a little bit controversial and may put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> now, okay, um, is there anything new that's taking place in the in the education of incarcerated youth? Those who are in the juvenile justice system, are there any new laws that are coming? Are there are there any tweaks to the educational programming? What's taking place there now that we can look forward to, to you know, knowing more about or researching a little bit more for 2019 going forward?
1: I would say um, one big piece now, there is a focus on, I would just say for programs overall that they would be closer to home. Uh, people are really starting to understand that, you know, again, it's, I, I, I raised this question in, in a piece that I, I wrote some time ago, but, you know, it's kind of like, when does the punishment end and the healing begin? And so it's like, we, we send them away. And for many of them, they're hundreds of miles away from their family. And so people, state. Advocates are recognizing the importance of having um, that closeness, and so even in South Carolina, I was on on a call today uh, with the Department of Juvenile Justice, and you know they also have a like a close to home project that they're working on that's similar to what New York State uh, worked on a couple of years ago. And so part of that is getting uh, the the students closer to home, and that might be that they're also then being exposed to the community-based educational programs. Um, Over the years, there's definitely been a concerted effort to decrease the number of children who are incarcerated with a lot more community-based or diversion programs, and so that's a great thing. Um, People are seeing on the education side as well just the importance of the transition piece so that what they're doing while they're incarcerated, uh, that there is a smooth transition when they go back either to their local school or if they are going to seek employment Um, i think there is definitely a need for a greater partnership between the educational departments and what's happening within facilities but i think that will come um, in greater in greater depth when there is again just this continued awareness about what is and what is not happening in juvenile facilities
0: Okay, and now to to give to put you on the spot. Uh, okay. As we end out as we end out the show, every every episode of Leading uh, by History, as I mentioned er- earlier, uses uh, a historical exemplar to be able to look at a person's life or an event to be able to wrap our conversation around. And since we're talking about the education of our most vulnerable population, we discussed two men at the beginning of the show, Booker T. Washington, who believed in career technical education, learning a trade, hands-on. And we've heard that uh, CTE buzzword coming up more and more, especially in the state of Virginia here. But you also had W.E.B. Du Bois, who believed that, you know, uh, black people should aspire to be a part of what he called the talented 10th To uh, get into academia to get higher and advanced degrees because it was through this type of uh, educational uh, framework that we could actually begin to change the course of the lives of of black people overall who would you looking at the difficulties that um, children are are having within the uh, juvenile justice system uh, in being educated and looking at what happens when they leave uh, what they've learned before they go in. Who would you be siding with in that <laughs> that century-old uh, debate about whether or not you should receive a uh, career technical education or whether you should be pushed towards higher and advanced degrees?
1: Well, I am a firm believer that there is a seed that's been planted in all of us, and that seed, like, is that passion that comes out, and that we know like we 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 have an idea maybe maybe not maybe not fully but like there's something within us that is like we really enjoy doing that also adds value to the lives of others and i think it's really important that we help children really tap into that Um, i believe that we are all gifted um, and so I think that there definitely needs to be a wide variety of options. I will just speak personally now. Um, our oldest mm-hmm. son is 25. Um, Shakir is the uh, currently the uh, senior IT technician for Chobani, the Greek yogurt. Um, I was mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, as a as a mother, I had Shakir at 19 years old. My husband and I weren't married at the time, um, so Shakir mm-hmm. was with me from undergrad through, through getting my doctorate. And of course, like he of course he was going to get his degree, but Shakir really didn't know what he wanted to do, but he was always, like technology has always been his thing. And so as a parent, I had to just pray and let go and just pray that, you know, he would be on the path that he was supposed to be on. And he really he really fell in love with this technology piece, and he found, he's the one that found Western Governors University, and he did earn his bachelor's degree in IT securities. And as we had a recent conversation, like, oh, so are you going to get your master's? You know, he's like, yeah, I thought about it, but, Ma, mm-hmm. in, this, in, this, you know, in this industry, the certificates mean much more than a degree. And so he actually just passed his level two for Mac um, certification. There's only a third level, and he said only 200 people worldwide have that. And so that's Mm. sort of his next piece. Um, The mother and educator me is always like, okay, and after that, you are going to go get your master's degree, right? (laughs) The reality is when we talk about, you know, wealth in this country, yeah. Are there people who are wealthy and don't have an education, uh, a college degree? Yes. But to increase the odds of that, I just believe that we have to make uh, education affordable and we have to make sure that if, in fact, our children want to pursue, and again, knowing that you will probably earn 67% more, which means Ideally, again, money is not everything, right? But it does provide the means for a better quality of life. You could actually spend more time with your family Then, yes. I guess I would have to say I would be on the W.E.B. Du Bois track of really trying to make sure that uh, as many children as possible get that quality education, the dual certification, sort of the dual track. Um, but ultimately, it is what is is sort of wired within that child. And I think it's important, again, for us to know the child and really help them achieve their full potential.
0: Great answer. Thank you for uh, taking that on the spot uh, a question just there. Uh, I was very interested in what your position would be. Well, we thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your time to talk with us um and and our audience to educate us all about what's going on in that pipeline and what we can do to disrupt it and to prevent uh students from being uh pushed towards and in and through uh that pipeline and so um we thank you again for uh everything that you're doing for the work that you're doing as a practitioner to get in the mix and help people turn uh, the system of education around for our, our uh, most vulnerable in our population, for the least of these, if you will. And um, from everyone here at Leading by History, we say to you, peace.
1: Thank you so very much for having me. I sincerely appreciate um, the invitation to be a part of this. And I just want to leave you all with um, just sort of this final thought. It's actually from Frederick Douglass. um, During his Blessings of Liberty and Education Address in Manassas, Virginia in 1894, he said that if man is without education, he is as a poor prisoner without hope. But education, on the other hand, means emancipation it means light and liberty. To deny education to any people is one of the greatest crimes against human nature. And so my hope is that as this podcast sheds light on the injustice, that we no longer deny our children, that we no longer commit the greatest crime against them, but that we provide them with the quality education they deserve.
0: Thanks so much, and we say peace to you.
1: Thank you. Peace to you as well.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's Leading by History podcast, and we look forward to getting back together with you again on our next show. Until then, peace.